morning, New Life. My name is Pastor Will, one of the servants here at New Life Press. And if you are joining us for the first time, thanks for giving us your presence, your fellowship, that we can come together and worship the one and same God. We are in the middle of our New Life Press Missions Month, and what we're praying for and hoping is that we can show the church how we can reach a wider community and a wider people through deeper partnerships. And so week by week, we're having the privilege of hearing a speaker who is one of the leaders of different organizations that we partner with. And today, our guest speaker, Chad Brewer, is the international, the assistant coordinator for RUF International and Global. He is a teaching elder of the PCA. He comes well recommended. It was a pleasure getting to meet him today. I'm excited for him to bless us. He is uh, one of the leaders in RUF, which is Reform University Fellowship, one of the 10 agencies and committees of our denomination, the PCA. They have a vision to really reach and to disciple the collegiate level. He's a teaching elder in our denomination. He's married to his wonderful wife, Christy, and has three wonderful daughters. And so I'm excited for him to preach God's word. Let us put our hands together for a warm welcome as he comes and takes the pulpit. Okay, better. Uh, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5, and I'm going to stop at verse 18. Verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, would you be with our time this morning to hear your truths, your words of life, that it might give us great encouragement that you are for us and with us 
and that we would be reminded of Jesus' great love for us this morning. In his name, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Thanks for having me. And I want to tell, tell you about two significant trips that I've taken in the last five months. Uh, the first one that I took was to West Africa in November. And we are looking at starting a new RUF Global in the Gambia. But I'll give you just a little bit of background. Maybe now's a good time to pause about RUF. Will gave a little bit. But RUF is a, a denominational ministry of the PCA. It's our outreach to college students. And there are really three branches of RUF. Uh, the first one is RUF National. And that's our ministry to American students who are on U.S. campuses. Uh, the second is RUF International. And that's our ministry to international students who come to the United States to be educated. And then the third is RUF Global, and that's when we send campus ministers overseas with Mission to the World, or MTW, teams to reach students around the world on college campuses. Back to the story. Uh, in the Gambia, we were trying, we were hoping to start an RUF Global in the Gambia this year. And so I went to meet the, the pastor. Uh, his name is Adresa, who would be the pastor, the RUF Global pastor, um, doing campus ministry there in Banjul, Gambia. And so I was getting to know Adresa, and I asked him about his testimony. And he told me how he came to faith. He came to faith um, as a young man who was going to um, a Christian school that was started by Christian missionaries in the 90s. And he came to faith because missionaries from South Korea in the late 80s and the 90s came to the Gambia with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was converted. He heard the good news as, as, a number, as well as a number of people um, in his family and a, a number of friends. And so now we're about to start an RUF Global with MTW because of the missionary work of some 30, 40 years ago started by South Korean missionaries and churches in South Korea that had a vision for seeing people come to faith in Africa. Some 8,000 miles away, it would be costly. Churches giving a lot. Churches giving a lot in both people and in money, but for the sake of Jesus and not seeing immediate results, but now 30, 40 years later, beginning to see the fruit of people coming to faith in Christ. Uh, the second story that I want to tell you is a trip that I took most recently to Hawaii. Now, this was not a, a work trip. It was a family vacation, my in-laws celebrating their 45th anniversary and their retirement. And so they took the whole family, and it was really exciting. And while I was there, I read a book on the history of missions to the Hawaiian Islands. And it started, the history of mission started in 1820 um, in New England. It was Congregationalist Christians who had a heart for these remote islands, wanted to see the people know Jesus. And so for the next 28 years, uh, they sent out 12 different companies of missionaries, a total of 169 missionaries, to go to the Hawaiian Islands. Sounds pretty dreamy, right? Be a missionary to Hawaii, sign me up. It was pretty remote and undeveloped. In fact, the boat to get 
these missionaries to the Hawaiian Islands, it would take six months of travel on a boat all the way down the coast of the United States. There was no Panama Canal all the way down past the tip of South Africa, all the way then to the Hawaiian Islands. It would be 17 months before their families would know if they made it safely or not. It was great cost. And I want to tell you a story about uh, two people who were missionaries. One was a woman named Maria Kinney. She went to the Big Island as a missionary. She was on the last, the 12th company out of Boston. And she went as a young woman in her 20s. After five years on the Big Island serving as a missionary, Maria gave birth to a daughter. One year later, that daughter died. That same year, her husband got sick. He was a young man, got sick. And so they traveled all the way by boat to California to try to regain health. But he ended up dying while they were in California. You would think she might go back to New England to be with her family. But she felt called to go back to the Hawaiian Islands. So she went back as a single woman now, a widower. She went back. She got married two years later couple years later, has a daughter, and while in childbirth, the daughter dies, and she passes away. Great cost to serve Jesus, and sometimes you have to think, is it worth it? Because churches and people are investing so much. I'll tell you the story about Elias Bond. He was part of the ninth company that left out of Boston, and when he left as a young man, He never returned, so when he said goodbye to his family, it was a goodbye. He was there in the Hawaiian Islands for 55 years of his life. He endured great poverty so much so that the missions company tried to find a different job for him because he was living in poverty. I'm going to read to you a short paragraph from the book that I was reading. It said, The mission repeatedly urged Elias to take a better paid cost at Lahaina Luna. And he was offered a position of $3,000 a year in government work. The opportunity he agreed would have suited my, his natural taste precisely. But Elias Bond was devotedly loyal to the people he had come to teach. He said, I love them still and expect to love them to the end. They have had the best years of my life. As under God, they shall have what remains. I have no other ambition than to lead these perishing souls to Jesus Christ. Missions, Christian generosity, it comes at a great cost. And it's not something that the church of Jesus Christ just has done 200 years ago, even 40 years ago. But even today, this just recently came out from the Barna Research Group about Christians in the United States. Christian uh, philanthropy, that was a hard word for me to get out there, accounted for 70% of all American philanthropy In 2022, 70% of all generous giving came from Christians in 2022 for a total of $300 billion. Also, Christians outgave the U.S. government in 2022 in addressing global poverty. What is it about Christians that they're willing to give, to leave, to do things at such a great cost to themselves. Uh, It reminds me 
of a story that I heard years ago about something that took place in Panama City Beach, Florida. One evening in the summer, uh, there were a couple of boys, brothers, 11 years old and 8 years old, and they were uh, out in the Gulf of Mexico swimming. And it was in the evening, so the lifeguards were no longer on the beach. And all of a sudden, a surprise, they were not prepared for this, but a strong rip current came along. The two brothers could not get back to the beach. So they began to yell for help. And so their mom and dad responded. They swam out to the two boys. But then they got stuck. They could not get back to the shore. And so the grandmother and the niece, they also go out to try to help. Now six of them are trapped or stuck in the ocean because the current's too strong. They tried to swim to the side. Nothing was working. And so... 20 minutes go on, 25 minutes. They call the police, they call the fire department, they show up, but they're not getting in to the ocean because it was too dangerous. What they needed was a rescue boat. But the problem was, all along the beach there in Florida, they were having these same issues of people being stuck out. So the rescue boats were all tied up. They had no idea when someone would be able to help this family of six. And so then what happened? 35 minutes, 45 minutes into these, this family uh, out in the ocean, a group of people began to gather, and they came up with an idea. And so they began to sort of dig their heels into the sand and then put out their arm. The next one came along linked arms, dug their heels in. They began to have five, then 10, then 25, 40, 50 people until they had 80 people making a human chain from the beach all the way out on a mission to rescue this family, and they did. And as I think about that picture of people coming up with this idea, being willing to do something that had a cost, linking arms with one another, it seems to me that that's a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. Over the generations, different cultures, different people, linking arms so that the glory of Jesus might be brought to a new generation who would need to be rescued. Here's my big picture statement uh, for this morning's sermon. On mission... Jesus became like us so that we might become like him on mission. I'll say it again. On mission, Jesus became like us so that we might become like him on mission. I have three points that I want to cover this morning, and it's all about the family. The first is the family resemblance. The second is the family business. And then the third is the family here at New Life Fullerton. So I'm going to start with the family resemblance. And I'm going to break that into two sub-points. The first is going to be family. The second sub-point is resemblance. So family resemblance. Begins here in verse 6 by saying, it has been testified somewhere. It's it's a funny statement. I feel like it makes me feel better because I, I know that there are verses um, in the Old Testament, and I'm not always sure where they, where they are. 
And so the writer of Hebrews had the same thought, it seems. Somebody at some time somewhere said this. What is man that you are mindful of him? Well, it actually comes from Psalm 8. And the writer of Hebrews is quoting this psalm. And this is a psalm written by David. In Psalm 8, uh, there is a comparison to angels in Psalm 8. But also here in Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2, there is also a conversation about angels. So it seems like the connection between Psalm 8 and Hebrews 1 and to our passage is angels. And both David, the writer of Psalm 8, and the writer of Hebrews has the same idea, that it would make more sense for the angels of God to be in charge of God's creation than humanity. It just seems like it would make more sense to them, right? The angels, they brought the holy and beautiful law to Mount Sinai, but humanity broke the law of God. Angels are powerful. At times, humanity can look putrid. Angels are ministering angels, end of Hebrews 1, and we often are living in misery. And yet, God would have humanity rule over his creation. But what's even more surprising is that not only would God give us the great blessing of ruling over this world, ruling over his creation, but that this God would call us into his family, that he would want to make us family. And that's exactly what God is aiming to do. And this is the language that repeats itself here in Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 10. I'll go through this quickly. Verse 10, the language is bringing many sons to glory. Verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. 13, I and the children that God has given to me. 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring or the children of Abraham. God is our father. Those who believe and trust in him are sons and daughters. Jesus is our older brother. And this is radical news in the New Testament. J.I. Packer, who was maybe... Um, one of the most significant theologians in all of the 20th century from England, says this about this idea of family that shows up in the New Testament. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. But for us to become the family of God, his sons and his daughters, Jesus would have to resemble us. Perhaps some of you will remember the name Bo Bergdahl. He was a U.S. soldier who took, took on the spotlight of news for a while in 2009 when Bo walked off a U.S. military base in Afghanistan intentionally and walked onto the Taliban's military camp. 
For five years, Bo Bergdahl was a prisoner of war. Until 2014, the U.S. government made a deal with the Taliban. It was highly controversial here in the United States. The Taliban gave back Bo Bergdahl, who intentionally walked off a U.S. military base. They returned him for five Taliban prisoners of war. But much was being made during these five years of Bo's father, Bob, Bob Bergdahl. And the reason that Bob Bergdahl gained so much attention is that he began to resemble the people who had captured his son, the Taliban. Bob would go on interviews on TV, and instead of looking like an American, he resembled an Islamic fundamentalist from Afghanistan. When Bob learned of his capture, Bo, he began to grow out his facial hair to resemble the facial hair of someone who was part of the Taliban. Bob began to learn to speak the languages of Pashto and Urdu, the languages that the Taliban would speak, difficult language, languages to master. He began wearing a bearded necklace in public, just like the Taliban members would wear. He began to study their politics. He scoured websites and chat rooms, and he would read books on the history of Afghanistan, and he would look at maps and would really understand distinct details of their geography. He said for four years of his life, while his son was in prison, he would spend at least four hours a day trying to resemble what it would look like to live in Afghanistan because he was prepared to go to rescue his son. He didn't have to. His son was returned. But there was one who had to resemble us if he was going to rescue us, and that was Jesus Christ. And that's what we're seeing here in Hebrews chapter 2. The first step for Jesus to rescue us was for him to resemble us, to make us his family. He needed to resemble us all the way from birth to death in this life. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same Things. In other words, God, who is a spirit, took on human flesh and blood. God became like us. He resembled a man. In fact, he became man, entered into our culture and our history. Sim similarly, in verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is that family resemblance, Jesus becoming man. And we call this the incarnation of Jesus. And Jesus' incarnation was part of his identification with his family. So in order for Jesus to rescue us, he had to resemble us. But it wasn't just enough for him to resemble us. He had to replace us. He had to replace us on the cross, the place ultimately of God's judgment and punishment. And the writer of Hebrews is very clear about this. He leaves no doubt about the Christian doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. Look at verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus would die for us. 
in our place. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, right? He resembled us. He himself likewise partook of the same things that, now here it is, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And then 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. So Jesus' mission was to rescue us by resembling us and then replacing us. This leads then to our second point. This is a briefer point, the family business. If you are a Christian, if you are a son or daughter of God, you are now part of the family business, so to say. My last name is Brewer, and I grew up uh, on the East Coast in Maryland, in a rural part of Maryland near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And the Brewer family business is a grocery store. It's been part, of, been part of our family business for 60 years. My uncle bought uh, the grocery store 60 years ago. He's now retired. He's passed it on to his son, my cousin. But my father and his brothers and sisters have worked for the family business. Some continue to do so. I worked for the family business, my cousins did, and my three daughters who are now teenagers who have never lived in Maryland, whenever we go back to Maryland to visit my family, they always at least spend one day working at the family business. If you are a brewer, it's what you do. You work at Brewer's Market in Silver Run, Maryland. And if you are a son or a daughter of the king, You work for the glory of God. You work that the nations might know that there is a Savior who is good and who has entered into this world on mission for us. And we get a glimpse, we get a glimpse of this family business in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist And here it is, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through their suffering. To bring many sons to glory. That's what Christians are called to do. Jesus now has accomplished salvation on the cross. And now we are called to tell people about this good news. And this is the mission of our church. On mission... Jesus became like us so that we might become like him on mission. And what is implicit here in Hebrews chapter 2 is often made more explicit in other parts of the scriptures. Walt Disney uh, was on his deathbed December of 1966. Uh, He had lost the ability to speak. He was in a hospital, and he was dying. And the last thing that he communicated to his family, he wrote down on a piece of paper. He wrote two names down, and then, shortly after that, died. The final two words of Walt Disney were this, Kurt Russell. He was a childhood actor for 
Disney, but nobody had any idea what Disney was trying to communicate with his final words before he left this world. We do know clearly what Jesus was trying to communicate in his final words before he ascended into heaven. We see it in Matthew chapter 28. As Jesus is leaving the world, this is what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He leaves that mission, commission. It's the great commission. And then Jesus leaves. Reminds me of a story that took place in Minneapolis, Minnesota about a decade ago. There was a boy named Mitch. And Mitch was dying of cancer. And he was staying at the Ronald McDonald's house by the University of Minnesota. And the Ronald McDonald's house is something that the McDonald's Corporation does, and it's, it's a beautiful idea. But for children who are very sick, sometimes terminally ill, they build a house near a local hospital where children can both have more of a home experience, something that feels warmer, where they're surrounded by people their age, and when their families can come and visit them in a much, comfortable, much more comfortable place. Well, it was Christmas one year, and Mitch was in his room with his dad. And Mitch shared uh, a room. It was a nice room, and he had a roommate. And his roommate was also an eight-year-old boy who also had cancer. And so uh, they were having a conversation, Mitch's roommate and Mitch's roommate's parents, about Christmas. And the roommate said to his parents, Mom and Dad, will there be Christmas presents this year? Mitch and his dad are listening in. And the parents say, I'm so sorry, son. We've spent all of our money trying to get you well this year. We don't have money for Christmas presents. And the boy began to weep. Mitch and his dad heard this. Later that night, Mitch said, Dad, we've got to do something about this. How much money do I have in the bank? And his dad said, you have $6,000. That's pretty good for an eight-year-old, right? And so the next day, they went to the bank, and they withdrew all $6,000 out in $100 bill increments. They went across the, to the road to a CVS, and they got envelopes. And so Mitch, knowing, knowing who was the friends who were part of the Ronald McDonald's house that he was living with, friends who were also sick, he would put $300 into one envelope, depending on need, $500 in another envelope, $700 in a different envelope until all $6,000 were gone. He went back to the Ronald McDonald's house where his friends were, and if the room was open, he would take the envelope and he would put the envelope on the bed. And if his friends were in the room and the door was sh shut, he would take the envelope and he would slide it underneath the door. As the day went on, Mitch got to hear his friends erupt with laughter, with joy, with happiness, that they were going to have presents this year for Christmas. And it was a wonderful day. And at the end of the day, Mitch said to his dad, Dad, this has been the best day of my life. 
we have to do this next year. And Mitch's dad said, Mitch, you know that you're not going to be here next year. We've talked about this. And Mitch said, that's right, Dad. Then Mitch looked at him and he said, you're going to have to do it for me. And that's what the Great Commission is. Jesus looks to his sons and his daughters. And he said, my time has now come. And I'm leaving this world. But now you get to do this. You get to take the best news in the world. On mission, Jesus became like us so that we might become like him on mission. And this leads us to the third point. The family here at New Life Fullerton. I was asked to talk specifically about college ministry um, in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. And I'm so thankful that New Life would have a missions month that they would consider, spend a whole month thinking about the Great Commission and about the needs of the world, thinking about needs other than your own needs. That's what Christians do. It's not wrong to think about our own needs, obviously, but Christians begin to consider others highly, more highly than themselves. And that you would do this is encouraging to me. One of the things as, as a family here at New Life, it's good to know um, who you are and even who we are as a denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, in the PCA, we tend to be somewhat highly educated in comparison to some other denominations. Presbyterian ministers um, uh, have some of the most rigorous uh, classwork, uh, over 100 credits of master's work to get a master's of divinity to be a, a, a pastor in the PCA. Church members are often um, educated in our denomination. Um, reformed Christians, reformed believers in the United States have been part of um, seeing uh, the Ivy League schools get started and campus ministries uh, get started. There's been sort of an inclination towards campus ministry because denominationally, Reformed believers and Presbyterians find themselves comfortable in academia. So that's good to know. Uh, higher education continues to be on the rise here in the United States. In 2019, 65% of high school graduates within one year of graduation were enrolled in college. 65%. That number is high, and it continues to rise, it seems like. In 2021, there were 19 million Americans enrolled in college here in the United States. Campus ministry, as a mission, then, becomes strategic for us. And I've got four stats for you. Um, this is from the Pew Research Center. 31% of people raised as Christian become unaffiliated between ages 15 to 29, the tumultuous period on which religious switching is concentrated. Now, this is compared to 7% after age 30 of switching or becoming unaffiliated. So 31% ages 15 to 29. Nine. So these are the, the tumultuous years where people are making decisions or walking away from the church. And in the middle of that 15 to 29 age range is 18 to 24, which is campus ministry. A second stat, um, 
similar. Most people don't change their religious identity, but among those who do switch, this typically takes place between ages, again, 15 and 29. So if we're going to be thoughtful for our Christians, students who are part of our church, we want to attend to them when they reach the campus. But if we want to see, uh, if we want to reach unbelievers, a prime time to do that in the United States is at 18 to 24 range, when people happen to be on college campuses and they're making decisions about life and what they want to do and who they want to be, and they're open to ideas. Uh, A similar stat, this is from 2006, so it's a little bit older, but this is from the Barna Research Group. The vast majority of professions of faith, 77%, come before or during the college years. 77% before or during the college years. And then the last stat is this is from the World World Health Organization. 42% of the world's population currently is under 25 years of age. Campus ministry then serves as a pipeline into the church. And, And the way that's worked for RUF and our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, is that we are ministering on campus Uh, to students who are from our churches. And so then as we pastor them through their four years in college, we see them return back to the church. Certainly they were part of the church during their years, but after they leave the campus, or during their campus years, after they leave the campus, then they return back to the church. But we've also seen Christian students who are from other denominations or from evangelical churches who get connected to RUF, and then find themselves going into the PCA during those college years or after their time in college. And then we're also seeing people come to faith in Christ um, during their college years through our UF and then finding their way into the PCA. Just a couple of growth opportunities as we sort of come to the end here. RUF National, our ministry to American students in the U.S. We have seven RUF National ministries here in California. I think you know John Kong, who is uh, at the University of California in Berkeley. That's what John is doing there at Cal. Um, RUF is in 42 of the 50 states in the United States. And one of the largest areas of growth for RUF National um, is in the West. If you were to look at a map, um, and you can do that on RUF's website, you would see that the West is where we are sparsely concentrated. Um, RUF International, and that's the ministry that I uh, oversee, Um, there are over 1 million international students were enrolled in the U.S. before the pandemic. Right now, we're at 950,000 students. That number is on the rise. It'll go past 1 million again shortly. Never in the history of the world have the nations of the world sent their best and their brightest to another nation like they have right now to the United States. So there are students who are international students who are coming from countries that we cannot send missionaries to, and yet they're coming to us. And so we can do global missions locally to international students. Um, There are 23 of these ministries. The farthest west we've been is Texas, but in 2023, we're starting two RUF International Campus Ministries one at Cal Berkeley, who will join John and his ministry there, and one at UC San Diego. 
six of the top 20 universities in the United States for hosting um, international students are here in California. Probably not a surprise to you. And then finally, RUF Global. Um, this is, I also oversee RUF Global. This is our ministry when we partner with MTW. Um, I believe Lloyd Kim might be here next week. And so as we have teams, um, one of the things that has, has sort of changed missiologically over the years is, is the interest in campus ministry. And so a, a platform for a missions team will often be something like this now, church planning, theological education, campus ministry. And so right now, RUF Global, um, we are in Mexico City, Mexico, Bogota, Colombia, Lviv, Ukraine, Dakar, Senegal, Kampala, Uganda, um, Tokyo, Japan. And we are um, uh, having conversations about potential new RUF Globals um, in the United Kingdom. I'll be there next month to meet with five pastors of five different churches in England and Scotland. Um, Canada, uh, a more ministry in Japan, Africa is really exciting right now, and then Australia, and in particular, um, the MTW team there with Jim Jung. We've been talking for about a year, um, RUF Global. Last thing I'll say on mission, Jesus became like us so that we might become like him on mission. Thanks for having me this morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm so encouraged that you would make the Great Commission a priority of this church. I'll close this in prayer. Father, your love for us is astounding. At great cost to you, you sent your Son into the world, that he might resemble us so that he might be a high priest, so that he might be the perfect sacrifice needed and replace us on the cross. And now you've given us the privilege of being sons and daughters and having a message that changes lives even as it's changed ours. Lord, would you be at work in New Life Fullerton, encourage their hearts, give them joy of the gospel, convince them that they are sons and daughters loved by the King who is our Father, and give them great joy as they take good news into the world. In Jesus' name, amen.